This week, we continue our Advent series through the first verse of Joy to the World. Last week, we looked at the earth receiving her king, the earth receiving Jesus. This week, we look a little bit deeper at what receiving the king looks like. Again, our our text this morning isn't a typical Advent text, but it speaks clearly about the purpose of the coming of Jesus, and so I'm excited to get into it with you this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, please turn to Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. If you don't have your Bibles with you, the words will also be on the screen. So let's read what the word of the Lord has for us this morning. Romans chapter 10, verses 1 to 13. Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not knowledge, or but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Thus ends the reading. Let us pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. pray this in your name. Amen. So this past week, Karen and I were marveling at how Christmas is only like two weeks away. Even in a year as long as 2020 has been, Christmas has a way of sneaking up on you and being over before you are ready for it to be. But even with the social limitations of the time we're living in, we've been doing what we can as a family to get into the season. Our tree is up, the house is decorated on the inside, much to Karen's chagrin. I think she'd like lights everywhere, but uh, I just, yeah, I'm I'm a Grinch, I think. Christmas music has been playing on a regular basis, and the smell of cookies and cardamom bread and other holiday treats have been wafting through the house. We even had snow falling, and and though it didn't last, it was nice to see it. The only thing left is to finish the purchasing of the rest of our gifts. Oh, gifts. Is there a concept that Christmas has distorted More than the gift, more than the present wrapped under the tree. The commercialization of Christmas has turned gifts into rewards. We have the story of the jolly fat man in the red suit who slides down chimneys and gives presents to boys and girls. But not every boy and girl, right? Because he's got a list. 
And if you're on the naughty list, you get coal. But if you're on the good list, you get a present handcrafted just for you by an elf in the North Pole. And apparently, Santa has needed some help in keeping an eye out for bad behavior because he has enlisted the aid of an elf that will sit on your shelf and then report back to him the antics of the children living under his watchful eye. While I enjoy the story, I enjoy the movies about Santa and the elves and Rudolph and the North Pole and all the rest of it, I am also saddened. I am saddened because we have distorted the meaning of a gift. We have turned a gift into a reward. And as a society, we have become very concerned with what we must do in order to receive a gift. And this concern, this this zealousness that is focused on the earning of the gift is not limited to just those who are outside the church, but is also present in those in the church. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, is speaking of this in the opening lines of our text this morning. He writes, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Do we see what is going on here? Paul is writing about people who are zealous for God. They are passionate about God, but his concern is that they are passionate about the wrong things of God. He writes that they do not understand the righteousness of God that we have been given through faith in Jesus Christ. And so they have sought to establish their own righteousness. They are seeking to show God how good they are. They are seeking to show God how well they've been able to follow his commands. They are seeking to show God how they have earned, or at least in some small part, contributed to the gift of eternal life in heaven that they are sure they will receive. They are attempting to use the law, the commands and instruction that we have been given by God to lift themselves up to God. Do we understand what it takes to earn heaven? To gain righteousness on our own, to be worthy of relationship with God? In Matthew 19, a man approaches Jesus and asks him the question, What must I do? What action do I need to perform in order to be acceptable to God? How do I earn my reward? What good deed must I perform to get to heaven? Jesus responds, why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. And truly, this is all he should have to say. He's telling the man to his face that there is only one who is good, one who could earn his way to heaven. For all of us are born sinful. We are born broken, are born short of the goal and unable to make it into heaven off of our own merit and good work. Jesus, the one to whom this man poses his question, is the only one who is good. And yet, being good and being God, he knows that this two-sentence response will not sate the man's curiosity, will not be acceptable to him, and so he continues, if you would enter life, keep the commandments. And you can just feel the man, like, rubbing his hands together. Now we're getting somewhere. He's thinking, which, which ones, he asks. 
which is also a fantastic window into how we view obeying God. Surely you can't mean all of them, right? So which ones are the important ones? Which ones are the big rocks? Which ones do I need to make sure that I am keeping the most intentionally, the most fervently? You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your mother and father and love your neighbor as yourself, is Jesus' reply. Oh, just those ones. That's, that's all we need to do. That's the layout. That's... That's the list. Well, friends, church, how are we doing with that? How are we doing with never being angry at another person or keeping them from harm? How are we doing with never lusting over someone who is not our spouse or loving our spouses in such a way that their hearts and minds don't wander? Or how are we doing at keeping our hearts and minds from wandering? Have you ever taken something that doesn't belong to you? Have you ever told a lie? Have you honored, respected, and obeyed your parents and those in authority over you perfectly from the time you were born? How are you doing with loving your neighbor as you love yourself? This young man who was questioning Jesus apparently didn't get the extent of the answer He didn't take the ramifications of the laws into their intended depths, but instead understood them on the surface and decided that he had kept all of these laws his whole life. All these I have kept, he responded to Jesus. What do I still lack? What else must I do? If you would be perfect, Jesus said to him, go and sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. The Bible tells us that upon hearing this final stipulation, the young man hung his head and walked away sorrowful, for he was incredibly wealthy. If only it was our finances that kept us from heaven, then we could actually do something about it. But the list, the law, there is nothing that we in our own power can do about the law. For as we look at this list, as we begin to get the faintest glimmer of the extent of our failure to keep this list, how are we feeling about our ability to earn our way into heaven? How are we feeling about earning our coveted reward, earning our coveted gift? As we look at this list, we know that if we rely on our own works, none of us are getting anything but coal in our eternal stocking. The elf on the shelf has plenty to report. We might as well pack it all up and head out of the island of misfit toys because we are clearly not able to function as God has intended us to. And on our own, we cannot meet the expectations that he desires us to meet, that he demands that we meet. Now, don't misunderstand Paul. He's not criticizing the zeal of the people. Christians should be filled with zeal. We should be passionate about the things of Christ. Paul is just also warning us that zeal is not a completely trustworthy sign that someone knows and loves the truth. As Kent Hughes put it in one of the commentaries I use, the fact is a man or woman can be zealous for scripture, zealous for Sunday school, zealous for the programs of the church, zealous for body life, zealous for all these things, and still be lost. Zeal, passion for the church, passion for the laws of God, does not a Christian make. 
Paul wanted the Romans and us by extension to see and understand that zealous people can still be lost people. And yet Christians are to be filled with zeal. But zeal and passion for what? Zeal not for the law, but for Christ. Zeal not for trying to lift ourselves up, but for rejoicing and praising and confessing our belief in the one who came to us and is with us. First Paul continues in our passage this morning, but the righteousness, sorry, but the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to say to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. We don't earn our way up, writes Paul. And we don't, seek to, we don't seek Jesus among the dead. Jesus is Emmanuel. He is Kyrios. He is Yahweh. He has been given the name that is above all names. He is Lord and he is with us. For he is in the heart and mouth of the believer. Look what we have done, proclaimed the Jews in the time of Paul. What must I do, asked the rich young ruler in Matthew 19. And still today we hear the question, what must I do? And here today we have the answer. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. So what must we do? Believe. Believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God and that you need Him. Believe the truth that there is no way you could possibly earn a heavenly reward. But believe that God knew this too. And that His love for you is so great, His desire to spend eternity with you is so strong that He sent His Son to pay the penalty for all the times that you failed to keep His law perfectly. For every time you lied, for every time you lusted, for every time you acted in anger, for every time you dishonored your parents, for every time you brought shame on yourself, for every time your deepest past and your darkest future in this world, God knows of every single sin you have ever committed, every, each sin that you remember and each sin that you have forgotten, and he has loved you in spite of it all. And so he sent Jesus to pay for each and every one of those sins. And Jesus did. He paid for them by suffering torment on a cross. He paid for them by being abandoned by God. And Jesus, the Son of God, died on that cursed tree. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the grave and solidified his victory over sin and death. And the Bible tells us the words of God through the pen of the Apostle Paul that we have been sitting in this morning tell us that when you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, that he is the name above all names, that he is Kyrios, that he is Yahweh, that he is Lord, and when you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's not your works. It's not your zeal. It's not your passion. It's not how many stars you have next to your name. 
It's not how many Bible verses you memorize. It's not how many church services you've attended. It's not how little you swear. It's not how often and strongly you are able to resist your vices. Following the law will not get us where we want to go or where God wants us to go. As Hughes said, the law was given as a tutor to lead us to Christ. God never intended that we be saved through the perfect obedience to the law, but rather that by our failure to live up to it, we would be driven to grace. And as R.J. Grunewald writes in his book, Reading Romans with Luther, The law reveals God's will for us to live as Christians, but plays no part in our standing before God or in our ability to do what it demands. Salvation is not a reward of our works. Salvation is a gift for those who believe. It is a gift. A true gift, completely unmerited and unearned. Let every heart prepare him room. God's desire is that all people receive this unmerited favor, this gift that cannot be earned. God wants to have a relationship with each and every one of us. He wants to have a relationship with your neighbor and your family and your friends. He wants to have a relationship with the kid that picked on you in high school and the person who keeps annoying you on the internet so badly that he died for them. Just as he died for you. There's not a person that God does not love. There's not a person that God does not want to give this gift to. As we celebrate and remember this first coming of Christ, and as we look forward to the second coming of our King, our Lord, and our Savior, may God use each of us as a vessel for the proclamation of God's love for the world. That every heart would prepare Him room. That every heart would believe that every heart would receive the gift of salvation. And, O Lord, may this gift spawn in us an incredible zealousness. God wants us to be zealous for Scripture. He wants us to be zealous in keeping His commands and instructions. He wants us to be zealous for the ministries of the church, and God wants His church to be zealous in His mission to bring about His kingdom. And as we zealously pursue Christ and His desires, Let us rest in the grace that we have been given for the journey. What a fantastic and amazing, loving and merciful, gracious and powerful God we serve. Amen.